Well, it's good to see you all. Uh, thanks for the opportunity for me to join you here. I was driving in yesterday commenting how green things were here and how much I enjoy the greens here. And I'm told this morning you've been pretty brown and uh, that you haven't had so much rain, kind of like California. So you're welcome for bringing rain uh, to these parts of the country as well. We miss Dan and Mariana. We love Dan. Uh, we like Mariana more. Uh, we're grateful for the, the ways that the Lord leads and brought them here. We pray for them as they begin their service here. My wife, Sharon, had asked me recently, what do you enjoy most about your work? And the part that I enjoy the most right now is visiting with graduates and alums who are serving so faithfully in various parts of the country and throughout the world. I get to see two more here while we uh, worship together with you all, and we're delighted to be joining you here. So here, let me begin by bringing greetings and thanks from Westminster Seminary, California, for your kindness in praying for us and encouraging us as well. This morning, God's word to us comes from 1 Thessalonians. So would you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you're able, please rise in reverence before his word and hear now the word proclaimed. This is the word of the Lord. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So far the reading of his word. Please be seated. Shall we ask the Lord for his guidance this morning? Father, what a privilege it is that we are able to call you Father in heaven. And what joy it is that you call us into your home, your sons and daughters, in Christ Jesus, for us to hear your word and to sing praises to you. Thank you for being among us. We ask that as we celebrate this wonderful occasion of the installation of a new pastor for Heritage PCA, the church that you love, we ask that you remind us of your grace, you teach us a path forward, you encourage us, O oh Lord, each and every single moment, for we pray these things in the powerful and matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Several years back, there was an article published in the Wall Street Journal that talked about a particular government official, and it was a puff piece. In fact, the author wanted to introduce this gentleman to the broader world, uh, a person who was not well known, and he wanted to actually get some quotations from this particular worker, just so that he could put in words from this particular person's mouth to be able to share what kind of person he is. Well, he refused that interview request. And in fact, uh, I have busy work that I need to focus on. And here, all I have is a brief email statement that basically summarized his philosophy of work by simply saying, we will continue to pursue what we have pursued previously, which is quiet competence. Quiet competence. I kind of like that phrase. In fact, as administration of a seminary, we try to pursue that end as well, as many of you do in your own workplaces. Not necessarily seeking glory, but simply quietly being competent in the work that the Lord has placed into our hands. And I think that's appropriate for ministry as well. This occasion has given me an opportunity to rethink and reflect upon the idea of ministry, and perhaps changing that a little bit, here, what we seek to be and do before the Lord is to be quietly faithful, that ministers and elders and leaders and all of us who serve the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to be quietly faithful, loving the Lord and serving His church well. For this reason, as we reflect upon ministry and the beginnings of a new one here at Heritage PCA, we turn to the richest descriptions of ministry that Paul uh, wrote down for us in 1 Thessalonians. And we want to think through what Paul says here about serving and leading. And as we listen, we want to do so in three parts in particular. Not pleasing man, but God. Not pleasing man, but God. Not standing apart, but among and not just leading, but being led. Not pleasing man, but God. Not standing apart, but serving among. Not just leading, but being led. Paul provides in this text a glimpse of the steady diet of human philosophies and ministry priorities. Whether you like it or not, you and I are being catechized by the world around us, whether through social media, the TV shows that we watch, or the music that we listen to. I don't actually have any friends, so I don't have social media at all, but I lurk over my wife's and see what's going on there a little bit as we try to understand our culture. You know how that is. In the first century, the idolatry, which was a primary problem of the church, was visible and touchable and tangible. In the 21st century, the idolatries that you and I experience are, may not be tangible, but certainly present as we struggle with those priorities that replace God in terms of the central place that He ought to have in terms of our purpose and motivation for all that you and I do. In verse 3, Paul simply says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Characteristics very rampant during that time period. Now, part of the reason why he begins this way seems to be Paul was also accused of the same, that he was trying to deceive people and to put something over them as he brings the message of Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to defend himself in verse 4 when he says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God. Not to please man, but to please 
God. And in doing this, he offers three comments, in particular in verses 5 and 6. For we never came with words of flattery, that's the first one, nor with a pretext for greed, second one, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. It's almost like three things that you and I ought to avoid as elders in the church, three things you also should avoid regularly living and serving within the church in any capacity. He says flattery. Although the term only occurs here in the New Testament, the concept was familiar to them and to us as well. It's a pattern of speaking that is insincere and deceptive, a self-serving attempt to ingratiate the preacher and the speaker to others. Lest you think that this doesn't apply to you, it's times like this when we turn to someone who shared with us some struggles they've had and we simply say, I'll be praying for you, but we don't actually mean that. How many of us have said that and never actually prayed for that individual, even as we walked away? Here, we speak and hear of a lot of international on our campuses, and I I find it amazing you do translations into three languages, having grown up uh, in Korea until I was 10, having immigrated to uh, the U.S. when I was 10. I grew up with bilingual language services, so this is wonderful for me to see. But one of the things that international students struggle with is when they pass by American students, you say hi, and then the, often the greeting is, how's it going? And the international student wants to stop and share with the person how things are actually going. <laughs> but the person didn't actually intend to sit and listen. It was just the way we greet one another. And oftentimes, the words we say do not carry the meaning that we desire. Paul, who told another eloquence and oratory-loving church that he approached knowing nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified to 1 Corinthians, emphatically denying that he comes with deceptive language or empty praise. He simply wants to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's a second way where we're trying to please men and not God. And the second way, he says, is about greed. Surely, Ministers of the Gospels aren't tempted by money. That's untrue. Pastors are sinners. Seminarians are sinners. We know this quite well also. Here, according to Paul, uh, Paul in 1 Timothy, often there are people who go into ministry of some sorts where he simply describes godliness as a means of gain in chapter 6. It's about seeking the accolades and the goods and blessings of the world in some ways. And it's not surprising that greed is so closely connected with flattery, a point made clear not in the ESV that we read together, but in the New Living Translation where the translators simply have this, and God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. That's how the translation has it. It's explicit, isn't it, in terms of what they're trying to get at. Oftentimes getting close to people recognizing that there may be benefits for the individual. But there is a third temptation that's often there, which is glory and the desire for glory. And the glory is very specific here. It's glory from people. It's not that you receive them, but that you yearn for them. You desire them. You long for them. Fame, recognition, renown, honor, prestige, you name it. Given the fact that being a pastor or servant is not considered 
desirable by the world, does not stop our sinfulness from kicking in. We often tell our students that there are many temptations that come our way. Money is certainly one. Relationships is another. Glory is central to the pride that we have. But Paul knows that seeking glory is almost instinctive for us. Even as ministers, we desire and need and seek after man's praise. Hearing the Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servant, is nice. But hearing the congregation say regularly, you are a fantastic preacher, feels better. Let me be the first one to tell you. Being a pastor to a small but healthy congregation seems quaint and nice, but being at a large and urban city church seems so appealing to many of us. Being loved and appreciated by the members of the church who serve is satisfying for a season, but a, quote, bigger platform, be it in person or online, allows for more impact in the church we like to convince ourselves. If I can hear those phrases more from our young brothers and sisters, I could be rich. Here, bigger impact. However, for Paul, this self-serving, manipulative, or self-aggrandizing ministry and message might entertain and please people, but does not please God. For our ministry and service is not about pleasing men, but about pleasing God. And for us in an age in which Christian ministry has sometimes come into disrepute because of the questionable behavior and motivation of a number, Paul's admonition is an important one. We ask Christians Ministers and leaders of Christ Jesus speak and serve not to please men, but to ultimately to serve God for His glory. I realize that there are a lot of pastors here, and it's a reminder to all of us, myself as the chief sinner, that we seek to please God, not to please men. But there's a second part here, not standing apart, but serving among. He says in verses 7 and 8, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. Now, there's some debate as to the word gentle here actually means infant, and there's a back-and-forth scholarly writing, and this is what keeps seminary presidents as well as professors in business, right? And here, where there's a healthy debate about how we ought to best understand this phrase. But here, I want to just point out the images that he wants to draw out, whether it be infant or gentleness, the idea being you live among your people. And the example Paul chooses is one that's very familiar to us, one of a nursing mother, a nursing mother, a mother who's taking care of her own child. And notice what's going on here. It's not somebody else's child. It's nursing your own child is what's envisioned here. Um, I have two kids, Anna and Simeon, are their names. As you can hear, it's from Luke chapter 2 that our humble prayer as parents were that these were the only two people who recognized the presence of God's salvation in Jesus Christ who came as a baby. And our prayer is that even if the world denies Jesus, our two kids would confess the name of Jesus Christ one day. Now, we love the name Anna and Simeon so much, we named them before they were born. If we had two boys, they would have been named Anna and Simeon. (laughs) 
If we had two girls, they too would have been Anna and Simeon. Thankfully, uh, God gave us one each. Now, they're older now, 18 and 16. One's off to college now. But what's interesting about raising them was when she, Anna, was a baby, just weeks in, and you may remember as parents here, four o'clock in the morning, feeding. And as a first-time dad, I was trying to be helpful. I woke up with her, trying to sit there and encourage her during this time. And then my wife, Sharon, looks at Anna and she says, Joel, isn't she beautiful? No, I said. If she woke up at six o'clock, I might feel that she's beautiful, not at this hour. Now, the reason I point that out is the mother's love seems strikingly different than dad's love. It doesn't mean that I love her less, but the affection is what I would like to point out. And this happened again when we were dropping her off in college. She's going to a school about two hours from our house. We were driving up. We were reminding ourselves, let's celebrate today. Let's not be sad. This is a wonderful occasion for us. Give thanks to the Lord and let's let her off well. Things were going great. We moved her in, including uh, my son uh, took off school and went up with, uh, with us. We moved her in, had wonderful dinner. We came back to the school. As we were dropping her off, we were giving her hugs. And mom hugged Anna. And then basically the faucets uh, never stopped. Sharon was weepy on the way down. She was weepy uh, that night. And the next morning, she found a, a basket full of cookies that Anna had baked and left. She took the cookie, she took a bite of it. Have you heard of the phrase, ugly cry? Uh, that went on for about half an hour. Uh, many of you who let your children go off to college might understand what that feels like. That's how moms feel, I think. And this is where Paul reminds us that our heart toward the church is like a mother to their children. Taking care is one way, but the term is even more intimate. It is a rare word that implies something like cherish, as a mom cherishes her own nursing daughter. And this love is reinforced for us in verse 8, that is enveloped by love. That is, it begins with being affectionately desirous of you, a lasting and present love and longing for her children. And this is complemented by the closing phrase, you had become very dear. Another way to translate that is beloved to us. This is certainly not the image of someone who is hoping to use people for his own gain through flattery, nor is this an image of someone who is a thief or a hired hand, as John 10 implies for us. It's someone who loves his congregation. It is an image of ministry and minister where the love of the people is at its core. For Paul, love for other people, the sheep under his care, is an indispensable requirement for ministry. This is because ministry is not a detached, disengaged, and simply intellectual pursuit of preaching and teaching. It is about life lived together, holiness modeled for us, and love shared. As he says in verse 8, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. This is why John Calvin says, in the meantime, we must bear in mind that all that would be ranked among true pastors must exercise this disposition of Paul, to have more regard to the welfare of the church than to their own life, and not be impelled to duty by a regard to their own advantage, but by a sincere love to those to whom they know that they are conjoined and laid under obligation. 
my dad is a minister, my grandfather is a minister, my uncle is a minister, which just basically means no one earns money in our family. Um, but this is the image of ministry that I feel like I watched growing up. I'm sure that you cherish and desire, and I know Dan and Mariana will exemplify. Here, it's about loving the people, loving among them, not detached from them. But the final point that Paul leaves us with is not just leading, but being led. He says in verse 11, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. It's another family imagery. Imageries and metaphors are used because they're immediately recognizable to us. I recognize that there are pain points with every metaphors, and there is insufficiency with every one of them, but many of us recognize and see the use of mother as imagery and father as imagery as well. Here, the role of the father, according to Paul, is explained in three statements in grammatical speak participles where he talks about, in particular, exhorting, encouraging, and charging his children. It implies teaching the congregation, instructing the congregation, but also correcting them. But another flip side of the same coin, not about imparting of information, but also advising them, consoling them, and comforting them as they engage with one another. Indeed, the father figure here in the church is what Paul envisions for ministry. And this is toward a specific purpose of leading the children to walk in a manner worthy of God. Worthy of God. But to continue the story of parents leaving their children in college for the first time, I wonder if you, those of you who are older, remember what that felt like. You were grateful and excited. At the same time, you're incredibly concerned. The way that our modern uh, mothers and fathers show their concern is that they install a thing called Life 360. Uh, and what that is, is you follow the child like a stalker on an app. Wherever the phone goes, the parents know. Now I'm being facetious here, but it's out of that concern and care, right? Because for both Sharon and me, though we've tried our best with our abilities and knowledge, we have failed in many places. We wondered if we truly modeled the love of Christ Jesus to her. We wondered if we truly implanted the knowledge that she needs to have as she's on our own, being challenged by the world, as well as the temptations that are around her. We are no longer there to actually curtail those things in life in many ways. But yet this is where the Lord reminds us as a father, the image of the father, focuses on leadership, but it's, the, it's surrounded by the need for dependence. Dependence. I want you to briefly, I want to draw your attention briefly to three things here from our text, where the servant and the minister, people who serve the church, are people called by God. Called by God, as he, we're told, entrusted with the gospel. Paul is acutely aware of the fact that he is an accidental leader 
in the church, as I am and as you all are who serve the church. We don't deserve to be here, nor are we competent nor gifted enough to be here. It's the Lord who calls us to where we are. As he describes himself, he was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, we're told in 1 Timothy. Then what allows him to serve God the way he does? According to Paul 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, it was the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who worked in his life by showering him with overflowing grace, is what we are told. He is someone who was called by God and placed here, here by God. The approval and calling of God are what separates Paul from others, what allows us to serve. Not because we deserve to be here, not because we earned ourselves to be here, because the Lord has called us to be here. Even as pastors and REs here installing here, Dan, Dan's not being installed by us nor the presbytery. He's installed here, called by God to serve you, his children. He loves you more than anyone else. And God saw it fit, and seemingly having seen it fit long before we ever recognize that Dan as pastor of heritage is what you needed for this time at this hour. He is the one who calls. But it's not only that he's the one who calls, and we are here because of him. Here, the father who leads his church, the message is not about him. The message he declares is not about me nor us, but about God. To declare to you, to declare to you the gospel of God, he said. One of the things that the graduates learn from seminaries is the fun of dealing with genitives. And you may be wondering, what are genitives? Well, it's that construction where you have the gospel of God. And it's unclear as to what that of relationship is. On the one hand, it's gospel of God indicating source, that it's from God. This is the good news that God gives to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But at the same time, that of God also may indicate the content. It's the gospel about God. That God had a rescue plan for us. Though living in sin, you and I, all of us, reveling in sin, reveling against God, always sticking our finger toward Him. But yet, here, He did not leave us in our state of sinfulness. We are simply reminded that His rescue plan was in the Son, Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus having come, we are told, we, because of Christ Jesus, have standing before Him. This is why in chapter 1, verse 9, He declares, you turn to God, He tells the Thessalonians from idols to serve the living and true God. He's being facetious here because he's talking about idols that are dead and mute. Now you serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers you and me from the wrath to come. It's this message of God and God's rescue we declare as ministers of Christ Jesus. This treasure has been entrusted to us, mere jars of clay, we're told. Why? To show that the surpassing power of God belongs to God and not to us, Paul says. We are mere messengers who bring the message of Christ Jesus from God in order that you and I may rejoice and contemplate the good news and the news of life that we have in His Son. 
But it's not only that we have been placed here by God, not only is the message about Christ Jesus, but that carrying out this task is even from the power of God. We had boldness in our God, Paul declares here. Paul at times honestly spoke of the difficulty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Even in this passage, Paul speaks of much conflict, suffering, and being shamefully treated by many people around him. Paul, who confessed to living in weakness, once described his ministry life this way, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. You would think opposition, suffering, and ill treatment might have destroyed his own and his fellow minister's sense of purpose, leading them to be more circumspect and careful, maybe even lacking desire. But no, Paul points that he is more free and more confident in proclaiming the gospel. How is this possible? Because he does this in our God, verse 2 says. He does this in our God. For Paul, it was God who had emboldened him to speak his gospel. As John Calvin says again, it appears that he was held up by the hand of God not of his own energy. The world tells us that independence is marker of maturity. That is, when your daughter is able to tie her own shoes, your son is able to ride his own bike, when she's able to drive, when he goes off to college, when she gets married, when he has a child, and the list can go on. These are all markers of maturity when you become ever more independent. But the Bible is the complete opposite, isn't it? The Bible says when you get older, when you get more knowledgeable, when you become wiser, you become ever more dependent upon God because you know you cannot, I cannot, you do not know enough, I do not know enough, you're not wise enough, I'm not wise enough. None of us is. We become ever more dependent in our growth, in our maturity, because at the end, not only has God called us not only does God entrust with, this, with the message, he empowers us by the workings of his spirit for us to carry out this task because it's beyond us, apart from our utter dependence upon him. It seems to me, friends, the best servants are those who are led. Perhaps this is not the ideal leadership in the world today where winning and influencing are the priorities. But I believe that the model of leadership that the church needs is not one of power and control, but one of dependence and humility in which Jesus is manifest throughout the ministry. This is not to say spiritual weakness, absence of giftedness, or pursuit of mediocrity should be exalted in praise. I don't mean that at all. Rather, a minister and a servant who finds security in not what he does, but who he is, as he sits before the throne of God, first and foremost as a son and daughter of the God Most High. I remind myself daily, I am not what I do. This is not who we are. Who we are, first of all, is that we sit as his son and daughter. A servant who is known for his prayerful dependence as much as he is for his abilities and his giftedness. A servant who revels not in the responses to his sermons or the number of seats occupied in his pews, but someone who revels in the fact that God chose him. 
There was that moment where you go, no, I'm not worthy. Where we're like Moses saying, I don't have the words. But yet God chose us to carry his message to others, to minister to his people. A servant and church who trust not their own plans, schedules, and initiatives, but who is ready to follow Jesus wherever the Lord leads. Quiet faithfulness for Dan and Mariana. Quiet faithfulness for all the ministers and elders that are present. Quiet faithfulness for all the members who love and serve this church and who have been here for so long. Quiet faithfulness for his children, for his glory, not ours, for his, the exaltation of Christ's name, not my name, in ever dependence upon him and his power, not in our own. Heritage PCA, congratulations. I know this has been a long journey, but the Lord is really good to you, and he has been good to you. Dan and Mariana, I know you know and love the Lord. May he go before you as you serve him faithfully here. To the elders and all the ministers that are present, my fellow laborers, may the Lord continue to work in your heart that indeed our desire will be to lift up his name and not ours in ever dependence upon him, not on us, for his glory, not for ours. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we? We give thanks to you, O Lord, this morning for the ways that you love Heritage PCA and guide her. We thank you for the ways that you have brought the church here so that we may install and begin a new chapter in the church's long history, history marked by your faithfulness, not because things were easy, not because things were always straight, but simply because you were in the midst of them all. So, Lord, thank you for going before us, Thank you for the promise to be near us. Thank you, O oh Lord, that you would empower the church and her leaders to continue to lead and guide this church with wisdom and great zeal for you and for your kingdom. Thank you for ministers, O oh Lord, who have dedicated their lives to serve you. We ask that among our brothers and sisters here in this church, not just the elders and ministers present, many others whose hearts will be moved by you and desire to also serve the, lo uh, the local churches in a way that honors you. But we be with the pastors and elders that are here, be in particular in the lives of Dan and Mariana. Oh Lord, that you will continue to guide them with wisdom, conviction, and your strengthening, oh Lord, but not on his own, not with his wisdom, not because of his own glory, but your glory with your power, with the message of Christ Jesus, he may go forth. Thank you for this time of worship to you, O Lord. Allow us to continue to see and experience your presence among us. For we pray these things in the loving name of our Father and our Lord, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.